and thanks to Adrian and History and Policy for organizing um, this event, which, um, as people say, couldn't be more timely, but in a very real um, sense of the word, I think, because one thing I, as a historian, have appreciated probably more during the whole Brexit debate than ever before is how very, very limited historical insight um, has been in the course of the debate. We have heard lots of comparisons um, of politicians with Winston Churchill. We've had Brexit compared to Independence Day in the US. But actually, the most obvious um, historical parallel um, the battle between free trade and tariff reform in the late 19th and early 20th century was more or less uh, not mentioned at all. I should briefly declare here my German citizenship because if you come from the Foreign Office, this is sort of the time when you can switch off <laughs> because it's foreign um, advice. Um, but for those of you who are um, happy for me to proceed, when I came to this country as a student and became interested in history, I, one of the first phrases I remembered learning was, don't cut off your nose to spite your face. Um, widely used in the Edwardian campaign to warn against the um, possible dangers of abandoning free trade and going for tariffs or trade negotiations. Now, in 1903, Britain was, caused, uh, was caught um, between um, a similarly momentous decision um, initiated by Joseph Chamberlain, uh, radical um, Joe Chamberlain, who um, proposed that Britain should leave and abandon free trade and uh, embrace what euphemistically was called tariff reform. For the non-initiated, what exactly tariff reform was um, changed its meaning. And with that, um, started a debate about exactly what free trade was. And you can see here, I'm going to um, uh, support my talk with a few entertaining um, cartoons so you don't, don't get too depressed. Uh, here's an early uh, cartoon um, with um, the English bulldog having um, the free trade um, bone in his mouth, looking down at the water, um, where the same bone says tariff reform. Now, what's the truth here? What's the substance and what is shadow? Um, that took around two, three years to work out. And I would stress that because we somehow assume, because there's been a referendum and it's been a few months ago, that things are now settled. I'm far from convinced of that. One lesson of the Edwardian debate is that there were competing um, political and social interests trying to monopolize what they considered to be the legitimate meaning of free trade. And at the start, there were really sort of three options. One was the Cobdenite or unilateral uh, version of free trade that was dominant and in power, meaning one-sided free trade. So Britain did not impose any discriminatory tariffs and had no discriminatory trade um, uh, treaties as such. And the only um, tariffs that were in existence were so-called revenue tariffs, so tariffs that brought in money as revenue, but did not explicitly, or intentionally at least, uh, discriminate between the country of origin of foreign goods. That's sort of the one version. 
Then there was um, Chamberlain who said, well, but all the other countries, they have lots of tariffs against us. So we're actually not living in real free trade world. It um, you know, might have been fine in 1846, but now we're surrounded by all these tr um, tariff barriers, so we must do something. And he suggested a reform of the trade system. And what Chamberlain and the Tariff Reform League ultimately settled on was a kind of mishmash of giving preferences um, to the colonies, um, imposing some um, tariffs on foreign countries, including European countries, but also using revenue and bargaining tariffs. And then there was a third option, which was the favoured one of the then Prime Minister, Balfour, who said, well, you know, um, one needs to be pragmatic. And ultimately, what he wanted was what he uh, called reciprocity. So broadly free trade, but trying to use the threat of tariffs in bargaining situation to extract favorable terms from other countries which had um, tariffs against Britain. And between three was sort of a spectrum initially, and politicians um, maneuvered. And then in sort of 1904, it, five, it really started to crystallize into two polar extremes, the Chamberlainite one of full imperial tariff reform on the one hand and the pure free trade one on the other. And Balfour, who had sat in the middle with his um, pragmatic approach, was um, squeezed out and indeed in the uh, landslide election of 1906, um, as the outgoing prime minister, he lost his seat. Um, I'm not sure whether Theresa May has considered uh, uh, that. Um, but my point here is that um, you know, when we talk about you know, what is Brexit and um, uh, Mrs. Uh, Gove and, and Fox talk about, no, we stand for a free trade, um, I think there is an urgency really in the political debate, which I haven't seen properly articulated, to really press people and say, what exactly do you mean? Um, clearly, what Fox means when he talks about free trade is not what Cobden or liberals in 1906 meant, because his only plan makes sense if he has the power to negotiate. If you just say, we're a free trade country, um, let everything come in for free, well, you don't have anything to give away in addition, right? You're adopting a free trade position. I don't think um, uh, uh, that uh, Fox uh, is on that um, sort of wavelength, but perhaps some other politicians are. Nonetheless, I think you know, in the current debate and public debate, there is a very um, uh, great degree of sloppiness where these different positions sort of uh, fuse into another. And I think media and politicians should sometimes um, probe and push a little bit. Now, we've heard um, very interestingly in the earlier panel um, the question raised, you know, to what degree is it revolutionary or unprecedented? And one speaker said, well, you know, many of the phenomenon we're dealing with we've never seen before. That always makes historians very shaky, you know, because we think, oh, you know, 20th century is full of really, truly disastrous bits. But even when you just think about migration, um, it's not clear to me that factually speaking, we are yet in a particularly unprecedented moment. Of course, there are particular features and characteristics and um, origins where people come from and the conditions by which they come um, to Europe. But broadly speaking, in a global context, there have been many times where we've seen much bigger um, uh, movements of people. 
Now, the movement of people is interesting because if you look at many of the um, Remain um, uh, comment pieces, including people who I respect greatly, uh, like Martin Wolf of the Financial Times, you often have arguments which start by saying, well, you know, movement includes people and movement includes go goods, but as a good economist, let's park the people and now let's talk about the division of labor that comes with the movement of goods. And that's a bit disingenuous because in the public debate, the two are actually connected, whatever economic theorists think. And they were connected also in the Edwardian debate, uh, which you see here represented in three campaign posters, conservative campaign posters. Um, on the top left, you have a German immigrant um, a British labourer sitting on the bench who enjoys the big loaf, representing a high standard of living. But you know, the poster warns that it's not just dumped goods, foreign goods, but also um, imported aliens, like this German, sneaking into the country, which are part of the problem. And that has been, um, I think, a, a popular rhetoric now for a very long time. Um, just because some South Asians um, also uh, are worried doesn't mean it's not in itself racist. You then have the promise um, that after years of British people leaving the country to um, North America and um, um, other dominions, John Ball is aware of this and he will use tariffs to make that exodus stop. And then on the right-hand side, he becomes a little bit more interventionist and just picks up um, um, a Jewish and a German um, immigrant by the ear to throw um, them out. So I think in any sensible and politically successful debate, I think the two have to be connected, by, also by the Remain side, and it's not possible to just make a case for um, the attractiveness of having cheap imported goods in this day and age of globalization. Now, there are, however, other stories that have been told and one could envisage uh, being told also at the present day. And to, to um, introduce that other story here, this um, uh, colorful poster from the liberal side, where you see a contrast between two types of Britain. On the left-hand side, the free trade nation, you know, with a, um, a very uh, boy and bustling shop, lots of big um, items at cheap prices in the shop window, and um, importantly, women from different classes, and you can see this in their dress, all flocking to the same shop. And then on the right-hand side, um, you have the caricature of Joe Chamberlain, who wanted um, colonial preferences and protection, you know, where the, um, um, the sugar is smaller and costs more, and the tax collector says, you know, look, you know, I've been coming around here. You, you need to pay your taxes. Um, but obviously, he has difficulty staying in business um, with uh, spider cobwebs in, in the windows. Um, now, what's interesting about this is that it's partly an economic illustration. Yeah? Be for free trade, and you'll be better off. You can buy more stuff. But it's more than that. There's a social story, and there's also an idea of fairness embedded here. The social story is that people from all classes uh, will come, and particularly women. Remember, women did not have the vote at, at this stage, and free traders were acutely aware that in any debate about trade, it's consumers who would be hit first. 
And who does the shopping? Well, women do the shopping, the so-called women uh, with the basket. And there's an idea of fairness and equity, that no particular social class will be favored. It's the shop is open for the whole nation. So I think what's, what's interesting is if you compare this to the current debate, um, I'm quite struck by various differences in the way the stories have been presented by the Remain camp. And here I think, you know, throwing all the ammunition at a macroeconomic argument meant that both media and politicians by the end of the day had missed out on trying to um, narrate and talk about Britain and Europe in, uh, with a bigger, wider story that could have talked about what um, Europe really means to Britain culturally and socially, um, in terms of the ideas and people, as well as the goods and the bank accounts, um, but also could have talked about the kind of social vision they have in mind. So what are the big differences and um, the big changes? Well, perhaps first and foremost, I would say, there has been a change in the tenor and, and political rhetoric with which the people's will and the position of parliament and, uh, are talked about. In the Edwardian debate, um, one key phrase, which originally emanated from the Treasury, but then was used more widely, was that free trade protected or preserved the purity of politics. Now, what they meant was, um, to use Edwardian language, no bribery of special classes or special interests. A campaign song put this quite well, that this was a fight against cold greed and self-interest. So a very simple idea um, that free trade by just creating an open market, letting anything in that wanted to come in and had a buyer, meant that no political power in the British state um, gave any favors to particular interest groups, to particular businesses, no, no Nissans or any of that. Um, and that was actually considered to be very, very important because in an age of mass politics, what Parliament was um, very, very keen to do is to recycle a sense of Parliament being above narrow special interests, and by doing so, preserve the legitimacy of parliamentary democracy. So the role of parliament is here quite crucial because the free trade case was that if we did trade negotiations, well, um, some um, ministers and negotiators would have to strike deals. Those deals would have fiscal consequences. That actually interferes with the power of uh, members of parliament in the House of Commons to determine what powers of taxation are, which is a historic constitutional issue. What do we have now? Um, we have um, a more or less accepted argument, which not many people in parliament, it seems to me, are at least not vocally objecting to, that the referendum is the will of the people, and the government can interpret that will, and Parliament, House of Commons, whatever the consequences are in terms of fiscal, um, fiscal changes, just has to go along with it. I think it's fascinating because it suggests to me that the position of the House of Commons um, in the overall popular understanding of the constitutions has massively shifted. 
Um, House of Commons is, has, is now um, in a defensive position, almost having to justify why they want to retain certain constitutional rights. I think that's very interesting. And it's interesting to me how, how well the government has done in getting away uh, with this rhetoric without too much opposition. The second big difference, I think, is the position of consumers and the role of popular politics more generally. Um, now, one thing these posters uh, were part of was a mass grassroots mobilization. And one reason, perhaps even the main reason, why um, popular free trade won in the end of the day was that they could mobilize or they did mobilize consumers um, rather than what Chamberlain thought, he could focus on much more concentrated producer interests, much easier to reach, right? If you say, well, we protect the steel industry, they're all in one area. Consumers are dispersed. So what um, uh, free trade did was to tell a story of modern British history in which 1846, the repeal of the Corn Laws, liberated the British people from the shackles of monopoly and privilege and aristocratic power and set them free taught them to, be, to join democratic institutions, and consumers were recast as citizens. And they were extremely vocal. So the most um, popular um, women's group in British politics at that time was the Women's Cooperative Guild. And out to a woman, they were standing up um, campaigning for free trade. As you know, inflation is starting. Um, but other than a few worries about that, I see very little sort of attention to the consumer as a public interest um, at, at present, um, other than there being a great deal of confusion. Martin Daunton um, will say um, a little bit more about the changing nature of global trade. That's, of course, a massive difference, because at, um, before the First World War, um, the issue was fairly straightforward, and it focused primarily on proving what the consequences were on industrial goods, and particularly the raw materials and semi-manufactured imports that British industry needed. Hewins, who was director um, of the LSE just down, down the road, um, set up a tariff commission which in many volumes and years of hearings tried to prove that it would be possible to construct a scientific tariff that benefited Britain. In reality, what these sessions showed was how already entangled trade in goods was to make that possible. But now we're in a much more complex landscape where a lot of trade negotiations now are about services, standards, regulation, or non-tariff measures. So you know, the idea that Britain can just easily negotiate some favorable treaty is, is, is hair-raisingly naive. And if you look at what happened when free trade um, was terminated in 1931, and the trade negotiations following on that and the colonial preferences, as well as trade deals with Latin American countries, you know, hundreds or thousands of trade negotiators for a few thousand pounds of benefit. Um, and at that stage, Britain was an empire. Last point is about social reform and the way in which, before the First World War, the debate about the future of trade was intimately tied to what the future of social policy was meant to be. So for Chamberlain, tariff reform was one side of the coin of social reform. He wanted to introduce unemployment benefits, etc. 
on the other, uh, uh, in the other camp, the liberal camp, um, the future of free trade was ultimately guaranteed by bolting early types of welfare state measures on, onto that um, uh, policy. Where are we now? Well, everyone talks about Theresa May's advisor having great admiration for Joe Chamberlain, but let's be honest, what we've heard about is trade negotiation, um, we've heard very little other than a few rhetorical attacks on the super-rich. We've heard virtually nothing on how those trade negotiations might be, uh, might be complemented by social reform interventions. So, what do we get from all of this? Well, 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Well, what we get from this is that there has been a tendency for the debate to run away into um, a question of economics and immigration. And the other aspects of fairness and citizenship got lost out. The Edwardians showed us how to do it.